I'm really excited today to share with you Shikha Malviya's journey as a poet, writer and publisher. Born in the UK and raised across Minnesota and India, Shikha co-founded the Indian Poetry Collective, amplifying influential voices from India and the Indian diaspora through a mentorship-based press. Shikha's literary contributions shine through works like In Our Own Voice, Poems of Anandi by Joshi and the acclaimed Geography of Tongues. Celebrated at prestigious events like the Bangalore Literary Festival and Times of India Literary Carnival. Recognized as a TEDx speaker and appointed Poet Laureate of San Raymond, California in 2016. Her poetry featured in esteemed publications such as Catamaran, Bloom and Prairie Schnoner, earned a Pushcart Prize nomination. Let's discover how Shikha followed her passion early on turning it into a career and how she harnessed poetry as a powerful tool for societal change. Hi, Shikha. Very warm welcome to Atlanta Diaries. I'm excited for our conversation. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. And I just want to say that this is such a powerful platform and conversation or dialogue rather that you've created. So the working title of my book was In Her Own Voice, but the book is actually called Anandi by Zoshi, as they say in Maharashtra, A Life in Poem. And that came out in July. So, yeah. Thank you for that correction. These things need to be repeated more because it is a very powerful book and we are going to talk about it in due course. It'll be good to understand first you know, a little bit about your literary journey and what brought you into poetry. Sure, sure. So at the age of four, I spent a year in India with my grandparents, which really cemented, you know, in many ways, my identity as an Indian. And my parents were very enthusiastic about celebrating our culture, but also respecting the cultures that we lived in. And when I came back to the United States, it was a different experience for me because I was older and more aware of my environment. And it was in an environment in which I was one of the only brown people in my school, me and my brother. And this awareness of being the other became much, much more, even though I didn't quite have the language for it. But as a nine-year-old, when we were doing a poetry exercise in my class, I realized what a powerful medium poetry was. It was like looking out a window and zeroing in on a particular feeling or a particular view or a particular emotion. And that sort of became my way of looking at the world. Just like nowadays, you know, people have cameras at their fingertips, right? Through our uh, smartphones and things like that. And we can take pictures of things and create memories. I sort of felt that poetry was like that for me. And I went through quite a few ups and downs. I went through racism quite a bit. You know, I was told to go back to my own country. I was called the brown dog, even though I, you know, shared the same accent and I shared the same interests as everybody. There was this automatic assumption of she is different. She is strange, you know, and that sort of propelled me into poetry even more. And in a way, I'm very thankful that I was here in the United States because poetry was really integrated into the curriculum. We had to write different types of poetry and we had to illustrate our poetry. Like we had to write a poem in the shape of a kite. We had to do all sorts of interesting things like that. So it got integrated into my life quite naturally, mm -hmm. you know. And as I grew older and older, I just realized that, you know what, this is something that's not letting go of me. I don't think I chose poetry. I think poetry chose me. Mm -hmm. yeah. I love it. 
I also love the way you sort of saw the brighter side of it. So yeah, I guess universe gave you those so-called negative circumstances and experiences, but also gave you the tool to deal with them. Right. But also, I do want to mention this, that my paternal grandfather, my dadaji, he was also a poet. I mean, that wasn't his primary uh, profession, but he had published a book of Hindi poetry. But because he had eight children, he needed to support his family. And so poetry was on the side. But I also like to think that maybe this was passed down to me in some way. I mean, I know that's a very romantic notion, but I really do like to believe that Genetically, we can inherit things like that. And so, yeah, I take that as a gift from my grandfather as well. So you got a gift and you embraced it wholeheartedly and you made the best of it. So what was the first poetry, Shikha? I actually remember this. It was at the age of nine and it was about spring. And it was a very simple poem. And um, it was rhyming, as you know, poems tend to be when you're that age. And it was, in spring, everything is born baby trees, baby plants, and of course, mosquitoes and ants. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny. Like, I have a terrible memory for many things, but I remember that. <laughs> Again, we pick and choose what works best for us and what we're most excited about. Yeah. So when did you really discover it as your, you know, passion or something which you really want to make into a career for a lack of a better word? Right. So I ended up... In India, because my father had a contract there for a year when I was in high school. And when my father's contract was done, I told him I did not want to go back to the United States because I just felt like I fit in much more in India and I felt so comfortable there. And so I ended up at the school in Rajasthan, which was in the Thar Desert. And it was like living in a fortress. It was a very stark geographical area. But at the same time, you know... I felt so safe. It was a full immersion in Indian culture in a way, right? Yeah. And that was where I had poetry as my partner. Like whenever I'd miss home, there were a lot of things that were a real contrast to the life I had led, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I was brought up in a family which was traditional, but also in many ways, very liberal. And here I was meeting um, girls from different walks of life who knew their marriages were going to be arranged by the time they were in 12th standard, who came from business families, who came from, you know, all sorts of different social circumstances. So I had a journal and I, you know, kept on writing about it. And then when I was in college, when the time came to figure out what I wanted to study, I wanted to study psychology, I wanted to study music, because music has also been a very important part of my life since I was a young girl. And I thought, I want to study poetry as well. I want to do all of these things. But then when it came to choosing, I did journalism and I did creative writing. And I realized that I was seeing the world as a poet. I was meditating on things. I was ruminating on things. And in journalism or mass communications, you know, you do that, but the turnaround is so quick. And there's a certain format and there's a certain way they want information. Whereas I experienced a lot more freedom in poetry. And so... I thought, if I'm able to, this is what I want to do. I know it might sound stereotypical or, you know, sort of like romanticized to say it was a calling, but it really, really felt like that to me. Then I think these kind of professions are only possible when you're completely in love with them. So take us through your journey, how you evolved as a poet and a writer. 
you know, were there any critics, any mentors? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I did have some wonderful mentors who culturally were very informed. And so, you know, I took many classes, like there was a class called Poetry in the World. One of my teachers that I had, unfortunately, he died very young of a brain aneurysm. His name was John Engman. And he was a brilliant writer, brilliant Minnesota poet who taught poetry workshops. So um, his class was a turning point for me because I was writing very symbolic stuff. I was looking at flowers. I was looking at roses. And, you know, I was um, trying to express myself through a lot of metaphors and similes. But all of it was very abstract. When I took his class, everything changed. You know, I became much more specific and much more concise in my writing. He would use my poems as examples as, okay, this is what you shouldn't be doing. But he said it in a nicer way. But I now realize what a gift it was that in every class, he would take my poem and tell me how it could be improved, right? And, you know, I didn't mind at all because... You know, the act of creating, it's separate from what you've created, right? And sometimes you can get so lost in the act of creation that you don't take a step back and look at what it is you've done, right? So he taught me that. And I'm very, very grateful to the different, you know, types of teachers that came my way. Roseanne Lloyd was another wonderful teacher. And, you know, I didn't know too much about trauma. And I realized that we think of it in many ways for entertainment, but literature encompasses so many things, and especially poetry. The function of poetry doesn't just have to be for pleasure. It can be to protest. It can be to examine. It can be, you know, to celebrate. So that's when I realized that the function of poetry is multifarious, and that's sort of how my work evolved. And then another thing I realized is, because I took classes in women's studies, was the act of a woman writing is such an important thing, such a radical thing, because women's voices are never heard enough, because women's experiences is often excluded in all of the historical books or historical knowledge that has been gathered, right? Because it was the men who were the philosophers, it was the men that were the, you know, political leaders, right? So I came to realize what a courageous political act it is. And I say political because it is a political act for mm -hmm. a woman to write and have their words read. Yeah. So, you know, two things stood out for me. One is when I think of an artist or a writer, everybody has their own expression. Everybody has their own style, right? Therefore, there's a lot of resistance to taking feedback because that's how their yeah. lens sees it, right? So I really appreciate the way you've, you know, talked about how you took feedback as a gift and you evolved Absolutely. in it. Right, yeah. And the second thing, and therefore the question which comes to my mind is, how then did you evolve your purpose, your genre, your, you know, what do you want to talk about in poetry? Right, right. No, that's a wonderful question, actually. So like, you know, at first I was writing about identity, which I think many immigrants tend to write about because we're always answering or trying to answer the question of who am I? And whereas I felt secure that, Yes, I am, um, you know, of Indian origin. I felt like I had to educate others at first. I felt like maybe that is some of my purpose. But then I realized, no, this was more about me processing my own experiences, which I did in my first book. You know, in my first book, I look at family, I look at culture, I look at identity, I look at what it means to go back and forth between multiple geographies, multiple cultures. 
And again, I'd taken this class called Poetry in the World, and it was taught by a wonderful poet and teacher named Jim Moore. And he talked about the personal and the universal. And many of the poets that he chose, they were working from that angle where you can talk about the personal, but it should resonate, you know, with everybody. So be universal. And so that really, really resonated with me. And I thought, you know, that's what I would like my work to be, right? And so I think I sort of got it out of my system to write about my own personal experience and my life and sort of, you know, assimilating the world in many ways through my experiences. Then I wanted to move forward. And that's when I thought I need to look at the experiences of others. And I was, I've always, always been interested in Indian women's voices and Indian women in history and Indian women's issues. And so that sort of evolved into what became my next project, which was, um, you know, I was looking at South Asian diaspora history and sort of looking at my experience of when I was told to go back home, go back where you came from, I thought about, I can't be, you know, the only person who came here. There must have been others before us. And I knew there were, obviously. But why didn't we know about our history? Why didn't we have a sense of roots as immigrants? And so that's why I went searching for who was the first Indian woman to come to the United States. And I chanced upon Anandibai Joshi's story through a photograph. And it just blew me away because she came to the United States in 1883. And so that's when the shift happened of me deciding that, hey, I want to look at other people's lives. I want to look at other people's voices and stories and see how they connect to us. But before that also, I've always thought of poetry as a form of social activism. So yeah, poetry for me has always been the personal yet the universal. And that's what's always Mm -hmm. given me purpose. Talk to me about that then, you know, so you said that it's for social activism. So how did you focus on that? How did you measure it? Those are the different questions which come to my mind, uh, Shika. Poetry is my uh, radical act. It's my, you know, form of protest. So that's how I try and make a difference. And then there have been different things. Like I created a magazine in 1999-2000 called Monsoon Magazine. And through mm-hmm. that, I was uh, able to share um voices of, you know, different poets and writers. Then, you know, I worked with other poets while I was living in India. And we did this um, small project called Poetry in Public India, where we wanted to share powerful women's voices in different public venues. Then I did a poem for um, Shankara Eye Foundation. Um, I also organized these events, you know, 100,000 Poets for Change, which was started by a wonderful American poet, Michael Rothenberg. And um, it sort of caught all over the world where in September people gather together and they share poems for change, like anything to do with change, you know, whatever issue could be environmental, it could be social, right? So that really moved me. And so when I was in Bangalore, I organized a couple of those events So in my own way, I've been trying to do what I can um, using the medium of poetry. I think your uh, what and your efforts and initiatives are so powerful, right? And at some level, I'm drawing an analogy to Atlanta Diaries. It's been a year and it's been almost 50 episodes and 45 absolutely amazing women, you know. Early on, my whole focus was on content. But somewhere down the line, I also felt that so it was not just creating those stories and collating them 
but ensuring that there are enough and more listeners for these because they really deserve to be shared and i really want people to get inspiration one person at a time so if i had to draw an analogy you've done some great work like you said the monsoon magazine the collective and so on and so forth but how did you measure your impact because that was your purpose right does that make sense yeah it makes sense I co-founded the Great Indian Poetry Collective with two other women poets. We were all living in Bangalore at the time, and we did that because, you know, there were at the time very few venues that were publishing poetry, and um, we wanted a mentorship model where we could help mentor other poets because India did not have and still does not have a proper creative writing program. I mean, there are a lot of workshops, and I know there are journalism programs, but in terms of creative writing, at the time, there was nothing. Like, you could not get a degree in creative writing. You could get a BA or MA or PhD in literature, but nothing in creative writing. So we decided, let's create it. And we were really shocked that within a year, you know, our reputation as a press really exploded. People wanted us to help them you know, become better poets. So we held workshops. We performed at literary festivals. We, you know, mentored quite a few poets. And, you know, the response we received from people in the literary community was amazing. And then I also found out that we have a formidable reputation in terms of editing, that we are really good editors. So, you know, it's just word of mouth. I don't have a way to measure it except when people come to us and tell us. And people would say, you're producing such beautiful books. Mm. You know, you're bringing out such important voices. So it's just validation through word of mouth, basically. And our book selling. And, you know, quite a few of our books went into second printing as well. So that's also another marker for us. And then when we had to fundraise, you know, we were able to raise quite a bit of money. When we needed it, we got a lot of support. So those are just some of the ways in which we are able to measure our response. But, you know, when someone comes up to you, even if it's just one person and say, you know, the work you're doing has really touched my life, I think that's enough. We have reached a person, we have touched a person, and that builds. You've answered it, Shikha. I totally relate to that, right? We're all trying to build impact one person at a time. And that's what I said. I mean, these kind of journeys are a result of passion. Otherwise, it's very, very hard to keep yourself going in. Thank you for allowing me to push you so hard. Yeah, I'm happy to answer any and all of your questions. Awesome. Let's shift gears. Talk to me about Anandi Bai Joshi. What inspired you to select her as your protagonist? I mean, to have somebody from India coming in the 19th century is no mean feat. Absolutely. So I was working on a poetry project, which was about the racism which I'd faced as, you know, a young child. And the premise was that if I had met my bully now as an adult or my bullies, rather, what would I want to say to them? And I think, you know, what I'd want to say to them was, I wasn't the only one. Even your family came as immigrants, regardless of, you know, our skin color, regardless of what country, what continent we might have originally, you know, immigrated from. Right. But I didn't know. Who came from our country before us, right? Because our narrative has always been, oh, my parents came here or my parents' parents came here. But what about before then, right? There was no textbook I could find that talked about the history of South Asians. There is now, but quite recently, the South Asian American Digital Archive came out with a book. But before then, there was no book 
even though we're one of the biggest diasporas in the United States. So in 2017, I went searching for who was the first Indian woman to come to the United States. And that's when her photograph popped up. And it was a very arresting black and white photograph. So in the photograph were three women. One was seated in a sari and the middle woman was, you know, wearing a kimono. And the third woman, she had a headdress of coins. And then underneath, I saw how this was in Philadelphia and it was at a medical college reception. And then the names were Anandibai Joshi and Tabat Islambuli was the Syrian uh, woman. And then there was a Japanese Dr. K. Okami. So I saw all these three women. I said, wow, they all converged in Philadelphia in the 19th century. And they were all doctors, right? And it just blew me away. And I just had to know more. And the expression on Anandibai's face was literally like Mona Lisa. Like no matter what angle you looked at it, her eyes sort of followed you, you know? And she radiated this immense confidence, this immense strength. So, you know, it was as if she pulled me in. That's Mm -hmm. what it felt like. And so then I started doing my research and she did come from a high caste privileged background, but her family was quite poor. And at the age of nine, they got her married to a man who was 16 years older, who was a widower. And Education was not a thing for women at the time, but her husband, he was a reformer of sorts. And so he wanted to educate her and he married her on that premise anyway. But her story had a lot of ups and downs and how she came to the United States was quite sad in some ways, but also like the strength it exuded was just amazing to me. So she lost her child 10 days after giving birth. And she realized one of the reasons was because women at the time were too scared to you know, seek medical help from doctors and that all the doctors were men and mostly European men. So she vowed that I will become a doctor so I can help the women of my country so they don't have to go through what I went through. But there were no colleges for women to become doctors at the time. And so she wanted to go overseas or her husband said, you know, let's see if we can get you to London or to the United States. And at the time, you know, that would only happen if missionaries supported you and if you converted to Christianity, which she refused, you know. So, you know, her story was one of strength, resilience, determination. And she traveled all alone on a ship, came to the United States, stayed with a family she'd never met before, but embraced them as a second family. And she became a doctor But the sad part is she had tuberculosis, so she died at the age of 21. But her becoming a doctor and returning to India was an inspiration to other women to follow her path. So she really opened the doors for everybody else. You're talking about another Atlanta and Atlanta Diaries within your Atlanta story. That's beautiful. (laughs) So how are you ensuring that you have enough readers? Well, um, my book came out in July with HarperCollins India. So right now Mm -hmm. the book is available in India, but I'm a Mosaic fellow here in San Francisco and Mosaic America is a wonderful organization which does collaborations with different cultures. So they were very encouraging about my project, especially because, um, you know, there was a real allyship with Anandibai and the American family that she stayed with. And so they invited me to do a few performances of my poetry and that really resonated across cultures and across different audiences. I received a lot of feedback from a lot of different people saying, wow, this is such a fascinating story. We've never heard of Anandibai. 
But I think it's in the past couple of years that suddenly Anandibai has come into the public conscious in India, you know, and uh, now uh, her story has spread. My book in two months sold out so well that my publisher sent me a royalty <laughs> check. Which awesome. I was shocked. I was not expecting that at all. So I guess that's one way of knowing, you know, that it's resonated with it. And yeah, I did participate in quite a few events when I was in India this summer. And I get emails from people on social media. People have been sharing the book. It's received some lovely reviews. It was a Hindustan Times um, pick. I was also featured on the Hindustan Times podcast. Awesome. <laughs> and I think the biggest thing I hear from people is that you brought her back to life. You know, mm -hmm. it's as if she is narrating her own story, which is exactly what my purpose was, because, you know, her story was always told through the lens of her husband as being her savior or her husband being the one who pushed her. And so the story was never attributed to her hard work, right, to her intelligence, like her efforts and her personality were buried. So I really felt that, you know, by telling her story in her own imagined voice, I would be able to return her agency to her. She was torn between making others happy, but she also wanted to fulfill her own ambitions, her own desires. She wanted to help others. And how difficult it is when, you know, you are born into a culture in which you're told that a woman is meant to serve others and make others happy to the point of sacrificing your own desires and your own needs, right? which still exists today, you know, it's a cultural mindset that we have, right? So I was really inspired by her life. And I thought others would also be inspired. I read that Halil Gibran's The Prophet had a profound impact on you, transporting you to another world. Yes. And it's so interesting that, you know, when I read The Prophet, it really influenced my journey as a mother, when he talks about children, I learned to accept that my boys will eventually fly the nest and it's their right. journey. <laughs> Tell us about your experience and what is it that sort of made you say no looking back now? Um, you know, I was very young when I read that book. You know, I must have been 10 or 11. But I liked that there was a certain simplicity in how he described life and how he described life as a journey you know, and how there were comings and goings, which is sort of like how my life was in some ways, right? But when you're a child, you're seeking all of these answers that like, what does life mean? I mean, even as adults, right, we sort of seek that. And whether his way was right or wrong, I think that was irrelevant. It was that we could question this. I think he gave me permission to question all of these things and say, hey, there are different ways. And I think that sort of drew me in. I mean, I don't want to say I was a philosopher at that age, or like, you know, I understood what philosophy was. I don't think I did. But he was able to introduce me to the fact that poetry can do this. <laughs> you can explore through poetry. I think that's what the prophet did. Um, mm. You know, that you can bring messages to others, that, you know, you can explore difficult, abstract things, you know, you can ponder the meaning of life through poetry. I felt like it gave me answers because sometimes, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, ask the questions, but you want the answer. So his work was very mystical, right? 
you know, so I think, you know, poetry can be about mysticism, poetry can be about witness, poetry can be about protest. It's just one of the many things that poetry can do. So he really, you know, sort of just blew open the door for me. And then there was no going back. <laughs> so with the wisdom of hindsight, Shikha, what would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self, do not doubt that voice. Because I sort of did, you know, think, oh my God, you know, how can poetry be a profession? I'll always have poetry. It'll be something that will always stay with me. And then I did, you know, initially fight that thinking, no, I have to have a more practical career, which is why I did journalism and thought, okay, I can go into content writing or I can work at a newspaper or something like that. But later on, because I also had the luxury, I have to say, I mean, of being able to focus on just poetry. I mean, my husband is the main, um, you know, bread earner in our family. And I don't want to call it a luxury because it's not a luxury. <laughs> For me, mm. it's my life, right? But to be able to focus on this without having to worry about putting food on the table, even if my circumstances had been different, I still would have chosen poetry. And one can never know exactly, but I think I might have been a professor teaching poetry somewhere mm -hmm. instead. But I think, yeah, I would have just told my younger self, you know, stick to what you love, do what you love. And if you love something enough, it will take care of you. Mm, I love that. Thank you very much for sharing all your insights. Um, I did want to say I would love to share a poem from my book. That'll be so lovely. Please do. <laughs> okay. So this poem, Anandi Bai came to the United States in 1883. And this is at a time when electrification had just started and the city which she stayed in, Roselle, New Jersey, that was the first city in the United States to get electricity. And that happened a few months before she arrived. And here she was from a different culture. They'd seen nobody like her. In fact, when she came, the women of the neighborhood came to greet her and they touched her hair. And, you know, they were fascinated by how she looked. They brought her bouquets and stuff. So she held a dinner for her hosts and their friends, in which she had everybody sit on the floor. And she had lent her saris to all of the neighboring women. And she cooked her traditional Maharashtrian food and made them eat with their hands. Wow. And so uh, just imagine this happening in 1883. So I'd written a poem, which is in the guzzle format. And it's called When the Guests Sup as Gods. So it's based on that event. Hmm? When the Guests Sup as Gods. In my wildest dreams, never do I fathom tonight that I should turn them into feasting Indians tonight, not those whose vast plains they call their own, but proud Marathas from my faraway native tonight. All the fair ladies draped in woven bordered saris, hands bangled, necks spangled, shining bright tonight, as they swish across the inlaid floor like princesses in my colorful trousseau, that belongs to them tonight. 18 squares hand-drawn in red and white powder on the dining room floor where guests sup as gods tonight, set with plates stitched from broad buttonwood leaves. A rich meal of spiced vegetables and fruit await all tonight. After a Sanskrit prayer, blessing this feast is chanted. All eyes look up to me on how to proceed tonight. No spoons, no forks, nor knives, just their pale, bare hands, sampling 18 exotic dishes prepared by myself tonight. 
fashioning small balls out of their food with pink fingertips. They pop them into their mouths like all of India does tonight. The meal ends with a serenade and sprinkling of rose water, bouquets of freshly plucked flowers given to each guest tonight. Oh, Anandi, see the red kunku on all their white foreheads. How the love of my new sisters makes this heart swell tonight. Beautiful. This was such a wonderful way to bring an end to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this incredible journey with Atlanta Diaries. I have had the privilege of hosting guests who courageously shared their most vulnerable selves with me. And even if only a small segment of these conversations can champion the journey of one person, it will be worth each and every moment. And together, we know we can create an even greater impact. So I do have a humble request for you. If you found value in these episodes, please consider sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and on your social media. I would also love to hear your thoughts and will really appreciate if you could take a moment to leave a review or rating. See you next week for another inspiring journey on Atlanta Diaries.